Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm rooting, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 569. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Apologise, I am for missing last week's show. There was just way too much going on in the festive season, and it's it's right in the middle as well uh, for my anniversary as well. Yeah, so there was lots of things, and we were away for a few days. So plus, it was was it Boxing Day? It was coming out. And I just, you know what I mean, just a little bit too busy. And I thought, hey, just take that foot off the gas for one moment there, Tone. So, listen, I hope you've had a blast over the festive season. And I hope you honestly are just going to have an amazing 2019. We're storming ahead. We have the main fiction today is playing, sorry, paying old debts, should I say, by Jerry Lean. And because we missed the end of the month, we've now got Jim on this week as well. Jim Campanell with his science news. And like I say, it was meant to go in the kind of the December Christmassy run up, but just missed it. Hey, Jim, apologies, lad. So, Before we charge ahead, I just want to say a big thank you to our Patreon followers of kind of who signed up over these festive times. Big thank you to Backtracks.fm. Thank you so much indeed. Huge thank you to Mark Fox. Mark, you are a star, sir. Thank you so much indeed. And Lawrence Fisher. What can I say, sir? Thank you. Oh, thank you. Marvellous, Lawrence. All of you, thank you so much. It is an honour. It's that beginning of the month there. So we've kind of dipped down 
I think we are on. Let's just have a, a little check of the... It's payday. It's payday today, actually. We are on 435. So we just d- dipped down from 439. But that's not bad. We used to kind of plummet, to be honest. So anyway, yeah, enough of that. Let us get into the main fiction. Because like I say, we've missed a week there. And you must be crying out for some science fiction. So... Paying Old Debts by Jerry Lean. Jerry Lean lives in Northern Virginia and originally hails from Seattle. In addition to being an avid reader, she's passionate about horse racing, tea and whiskey. I'm a honeyed whiskey, I'm afraid, Jerry. Yeah, total cop out. And her latest obsession is ASMR vids. Now, I'm not sure what ASMR vids are, to be honest. She has work appearing in Nature, Ocean, Scott Cords, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Daily Science Fiction, Cast of Wonders and others. She's edited several anthologies for independent presses, is finishing some longer projects and is a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America and the Horror Writers America. There's a little link there for Jerry's site as well. Now, this story is narrated by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks slightly, just slightly off from how he sounds. From a secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Farfetch Fables, The Cursed Inn, and can be found on Twil- Twitter as well. And there's a link there to Anthony's Twitter handle. So, the Starship Sower is very proud to present Paying Old Debts by Jerry Lean. It started with a girl. No surprise there. Things like this always start with a girl. I've read enough of Damon's pulps to know that. Context training, he calls it. I've poured through his detective stories, science fiction, romance, suspense thrillers, you name it. It helps my programming, although he says I'm more than the sum of my code. I'm not a robot. I'm not human. I'm something else and I can use contractions like nobody's business. Also cliches. I sit in a diner and nurse a cup of joe. I can drink it if I need to, to blend. Like now. The waitress comes by and fills my cup up again. I have to be careful how much I drink. The reservoir inside me only holds so much before I have to dump it. Although in that sense, I'm no different than any other guy. They pee... I pee. Only I never use the urinals, because the sight of black coffee or red wine coming straight out of the whizzer is, I've learned, disconcerting to most fellas. And no, they don't as a rule check me out, but the smell of just-brewed Colombian spigoting out next to him is a dead giveaway. Now if Damon can get Peter to figure out a way to change what I drink to urine, I'll really blend. Blending's important in my line of work. Only right now I'm not on the job. This is personal time. Not that Damon gives me that, but I eke it out of jobs done faster than expected or missions aborted. I come here and sit, drinking coffee while I watch the brownstone where he lives. He. Rick. Real handsome guy with a string of women who probably don't know the others exist. Rick. Supreme asshole. 
A guy who hurt someone I cared about. Care about. Still care about. Verb tenses are problematic. I cared about her. I killed her anyway. It was my job. She was the target. But we made love. She didn't have to tell me that it wasn't just sex. We connected. She was an inspector for Damon's sex robots. That's what we 3500s pose as when we're not working. Or sometimes when we are. No better way to get close to targets than by being close to the people they know and love. Some targets come along that way strictly by accident. You're at a party. You see a person on the mark list. You take your shot if you can get it. Although it's rarely a shot. Guns leave behind evidence. Guns are obvious. Our job is to make it look natural. Or at least not like murder. In any given interaction, we're trained to spot every possible moment that would lend itself to an untraceable death. There's normally more than any human would care to contemplate. Anyway, this girl, Tara. Real sweet kid, but closed off and lonely. Scared at the end, until I took care of her. In every way that word can mean. There was never a question that I'd do it. It was Damon's last test for me, though, so maybe he hadn't been sure. I made sure she wasn't scared. I made sure I kissed her just before, lips soft, breath soothing on her skin. She hadn't asked for us to hurt her, so I did it as gently as I could. This guy I'm watching never took such care. She never would have been working for Damon, never would have become my target, if Rick hadn't broken her heart made her withdraw to things that couldn't hurt her, or shouldn't have been able to. Someday, I'm going to make him pay for what he did to Tara. Someday, an opportunity will present itself. An internal alarm goes off, and I know it's time to leave. I've used up my window of free time and have to get back to the lab. I take the bus because Damon's drilled into me. Don't attract attention. Nondescript everything for a job. I get off two stops after the one near Future Pleasures, Inc., and walk through the alleys, making sure I'm not followed, by men or one of Damon's other 3500s. He loves to make sure we're on our game. The back door clicks as a unit inside me communicates with the badge reader and unlocks the door. Peter is sitting in the service area drinking coffee, and he looks up and studies me. Peter could almost be a robot. He sits still enough to appear immobile. He barely blinks. Something we're programmed to do randomly. As he assesses me. If I were human, Peter would give me the creeps. Clifford, how goes the war? His breath makes it clear there's more than coffee in his mug. I can smell things like that. Analyze particles for all sorts of things. In his case, it's cheap Kentucky bourbon. My mission was a success. Oh, come on, Cliffy. Try out some of that impressive command of the idiom on me. The mark went down like the Titanic. 
Peter laughs, and the liquid in his mug swishes dangerously. Perfect. You are so damn perfect it's scary. He doesn't look scared, though. He looks smug. My perfection is due in large part to him. He may be a drunk and an ass, but he can program anyone else under the table. Damon wants you to take Nanette on a field test. I stop and turn. I've never been asked to take another robot on a field test. Why? What do you mean, why? Your almighty creator dictates it, so you'll do it. Why Nanette? Peter leans in, a smirk on his face. Because she's Damon's new favorite, that's why, buddy boy. You're no longer Damon's pet. Oh. It's my policy not to indulge Peter when he's drunk. Is that all you have to say? When I turn away, he says, I know what you're doing when you're not working. I freeze. I scan every process, every beep, every signal inside me. Is one of them a transponder? I've never known if I'm being tracked, but it would be logical to assume that I am. What am I doing? Well, okay. Peter raises his mug in a mocking toast. I don't know what you're doing, but I do know where and when. I turn, my face as blank as I can make it. Meaning? God, that's a beautiful thing, Cliff. That ability to trail off a question as if you're a human. He beams at me. You're a masterpiece. A masterpiece who hangs out at a diner which happens to be across from the home of an ex-boyfriend of one of our former inspectors. I don't answer, and I know my face betrays nothing. What are you planning? I'm practicing blending. I don't think so. Peter gets up and pats my arm. I like Tara, too, a lot more than anyone here ever guessed. She wasn't into flesh and blood, now was she? I stay silent. This is dangerous ground for him and for me. So, so I guess if you want to spend time at some seedy diner blending, I'm not going to tell Damon. I stare at him for a moment and see that he's serious. You track me routinely? I track all of you routinely, my fine flesh and metal friend. Peter's lips turn up, one side first, then the other. It's a strange smile. I just don't pass on all the info to Damon. Ah. Yeah. Ah. Peter raises his cup again, but this time the mocking element seems to be missing. To Terra. I have nothing to toast with, so I nod. Hell of a girl. He opens the door and wanders out into the alley. I let him go and head for the lab in my next assignment. Mentor to Damon's new favored child. Nanette's a stunner. Blonde and blue-eyed, tall and luscious. She turns heads as we walk down the street. She's dressed in a tight little number 
a blue dress so bright it's a hell of a long way from blending. Peter says you're the best. Her voice is husky, meant to seduce on levels far beyond simple hearing. My voice is like that, too. We're engineered to put people at ease. To attract. I hear you're the new favorite, so maybe you're the best. I smile at her in my most offhand way and see her frown. She does it prettily. I have a lot to learn. I'm glad you're going to teach me. I nod, not sure what game she's playing. But we're all masters of manipulation, so she's up to something. Cliff, I'm just a novelty to Damon. She moves closer, her arm brushing mine. I register it as perfect human temperature. Her skin is soft, no trace of the rubber that used to give our kind's exterior away. A novelty? But I know what she means. We're all novelties until he builds the next model. Let me guess. 3500 series point one. No, you don't get it. She stopped walking, causing a few people on the sidewalk to mutter, but she ignores them. He knew me. Well, not me. But the model for my face, for my body. You're modeled on someone? That's unheard of. Sure, we might look like someone familiar. The human face only goes so many ways. But to be a dead ringer? Is that the deal? Is she going to take someone's place? That really would be the next level. I think... I think she meant something to him. She stretches out a tanned hand, then clenches it into a fist. I've never been with a tester, only with him. Has he ever used you? As I shake my head, she leans in close, as if it's possible to gain comfort from me. Should I be concerned that he's not gentle? I don't profess to understand our creator. I understand him, I think. I just don't know if I should fear him. She pouts prettily and takes my arm. Aren't you supposed to find me a date? Not a date. This is just flirting practice. Attraction is the name of the game tonight, not completion but I'm still stymied as to why Damon's not giving her to the testers. He told me to make sure the place I chose was visible, make sure she was seen, but to be back by midnight. You have a preference? I'm not programmed to have a preference. She smiles lazily. Although... Although what? I'm already weighing bars in my mind, which one will get us the best testing opportunity for her. Although I think if I had a type, you'd be it. I'm not on the menu. In this, at least, I have some choice. Glad I don't have feelings or you'd have crushed them. But she looks away as if she does have feelings. Let's get started, all right? I pick a bar in the trendy end of town. She's a natural at attraction, but then we're programmed that way. Human behavior can be codified. Or coded, anyway. The shy glance, the tremulous smile, the crossing of legs, leaning in a body. I sit in a booth at the back of the bar and watch her work. A woman sits across from me without asking, and I talk to her because she's pretty and a human male wouldn't ignore that. 
but I still keep an eye on Nan. Nan. She didn't tell me to call her that. I'd delete the reference if I could, but the part that makes me more than just a robot won't let me. She's Nan to me now. I have a strong suspicion Damon won't be happy about that. I won't tell him, then. Boss, you wanted to see me? Damon's office is filled with smoke. His cigarettes are imported, and the particles I can analyze from them make for an interesting chemical mix. How's our girl doing? Damon doesn't look at me. She's a big hit. I've taken her out for multiple sessions, never the same place, always on nights Damon tells me to. I thought she might be. He swivels in his chair, his direct stare almost unnerving. The real Nanette is, too. He seems to be waiting for me to react. I could feign surprise, but lying to him seems ill-advised. Not that I can't do it, because I omit details all the time about my little sojourns at the diner. But there's a reason for that. Yeah, she told me there's a real person with her face. Her face, her body. Not, unfortunately, her sweet and forgiving temperament. Damon crushes out his cigarette and immediately lights another, taking several puffs before he looks up at me again. You're lucky, Cliff. You can't be hurt. The real Nanette hurt you? It's an obvious question, but he seems to need it. Yes, she did. He pulls out a file from a stack on his desk. Take a look. The file is full of photos. Images of Nan's twin with a man and two children. She rejected you? Damon looks at me like I'm an idiot. Keep reading. I go through the pages. Finally hit on a report about artificial intelligence and its applications in the sexual pleasure industry. The report features a company run by Nanette Melville. She stole my work. Our work, really. We had an agreement, a shared vision, and she tried to screw me out of it. Damon leans back. I've been waiting for revenge. And now, it's time. You want to replace her? Damon laughs as if I've said something very, very funny. No, my dear innocent. I want to frame her. He takes the file from me, pulls out the picture of her with her family, then with other men. Her husband has buckets of money, and she pretends to be a good wife. But Nanette's not the faithful type. She likes sex, always has. Sort of expected in our business. He runs his finger over her face, and for a moment his expression softens. The mission is simple. You find a man, you have her go home with him, and then she kills him. Messily. Leaving lots of prints. Prints? We're made without them. Leaving a trace is usually a bad thing. Our Nanette's special. I made sure the prints were identical. I frown. If Nan is caught, she'll be outed as a robot eventually. We're good, but we're not that good, so... Damon sighs. Just getting it? I nod. You're going to kill our Nanette once she's done the deed. No, Cliff. You're going to kill her. 
His smile is not nice. He knows I've never had to terminate another robot. You've grown fond of her, right? During your little excursions? Fond? Damon's smile is pleased. Do you know how long it took to program the ability to answer a question with a question? Obfuscation's a tricky coding. I ignore his self-congratulations. Once she's gone, the real Nanette will be blamed. That's right, Sherlock. Which means this has to be planned perfectly. We'll need a night that the real Nanette can't come up with an alibi. He probably has someone watching her all the time, learning her schedule, reporting on those moments when no one is around her, and anything could happen. Kids at grandma's, maybe. Husband working late. There's a flaw in his plan. The victim. What motive? Insanity doesn't play well when there's no prior history. Who cares about motive? Her prints will be everywhere. But there won't be any DNA evidence. No blood on her clothes. Although he could have whoever's watching her plant those. But still, Nan wouldn't leave anything behind in the way of skin or hair. Your point? It would be better if we could establish a prior connection. Someone, or a few someones, seeing her going home with him well before the murder. There are plenty of guys who leave the bars with a new flavor every night. It could set a woman off if she cared. Nanette can certainly make it look like she cares. Damon nods. I like it. You have a guy in mind? I do. I don't say that, though. I'll find one. I leave it to you, Cliff. I nod and he turns back to his desk, smoke settling around him like a bubble. Yes? He asks when I don't go away. Are you going to tell her? Arnanette, his dupe. Hadn't planned on it. You don't trust her. Her programming, unless they screwed up somehow, will prevail. Even if she wants to live, she'll complete her mission. The 3500s are different. You have more... initiative. I suspect he doesn't want to say free will. I imagine it terrifies him to think of us with a mind and drive of our own. Even if that's what he's been trying to achieve with each new model. He pulls another file out and slides it across to me without looking up. It's full of Terra's inspector reports. I wasn't sure you were going to go through with killing her. I wasn't aware I had a choice. Deep down, I know I didn't. The objective is hard-coded. How I get to that objective is up to me, but I will get there. Even free will has its binary limits. You're my pride and joy, Cliff. You really are. He glances at me. Don't tell Nanette. That's an order. He just made it easier. He probably thinks he's doing me a favor. Or maybe he still doesn't trust me. Doesn't matter. Either way, I can't tell her the truth now. Nan and I are at the diner, watching the brownstone. Rick's kissing a woman goodbye at the door. Third one this week, Nan says. No judgment in her voice. No anything in her voice. I haven't told her the truth, but I suspect Peter might have.
She's been subdued for days, ever since I saw them talking together quietly. Are you all right? It's a human question, but coming from me, it will trigger a self-diagnostic. Not that anyone will notice. We can do that and still function. Damon wanted us to be masters of multitasking. She nods. A few days ago, she would have answered with words, her ebullient voice spilling over as she enjoyed, as much as we can, being alive. Something's wrong, though. I can't tell her the truth, but Damon never said I couldn't come at the issue from the side. You know what's wrong. She leans forward. You know exactly what's wrong. I nod, because it's the only thing I can do given my programming. I'm not okay with it. But she's studying Rick, and I understand the contradiction. I wasn't okay with murdering Tara. I did it anyway. Only Nan has to murder herself. I'm not sure I could do that, now that I've gotten a taste of living. I guess I'll find out if and when Damon orders me to give my life for the cause. It's that something more in me that hopes he never does. This guy isn't random, Nan says. She smiles at the waitress who keeps her cups filled. They know you here. Didn't hear anyone calling me by name. They're accustomed to you being here, then. The waitress's smile wasn't the kind you give a stranger. It was if she wants a nice fat tip. Nan doesn't answer, just goes back to staring at Rick's door, now closed, his latest conquest safely gone. Who is he? I deserve to know that much. He hurt someone I cared about. A human? A tester. I stir my coffee, as if the next part makes no difference to me. A mark. Oh. I can tell she's not quite sure what to do with that. It's the least I can do. She nods, finally understanding, judging from the glint in her eyes. No, Cliff. It's the most you can do. Yeah. That too. She smiles then, a luminous smile. What? I said something good? She nods. I can help you. That's how I'm going to regard this... mission. Helping you avenge someone you love, rather than helping Damon get revenge on someone he hates. I feel something. Something that goes beyond programming or learned response. It's a pang... A surge of pain that she wants motivation that's positive, not negative. That we're different enough to want what we do to matter in some way. Even if what we do is, by most people's standards, horrible. Do you suppose she's evil? She asks. The other Nan? She smiles at the nickname. She always does. It's the only thing that's hers in this crazy life. I shrug. I don't know if she is or not. But Damon wants her framed. That's enough, right? I wonder. If I tell her that it's not right, if she could break her programming. 
I know that if I even suspected she might do that, I'd have to destroy her. Protecting FPI is high on my coded list of things to do. I'm probably just a test case anyway. That's what Peter thinks. She looks momentarily guilty for outing Peter, then sighs and shakes her head. Peter thinks Damon has a client, someone very rich, who wants this same thing to happen to an enemy. So Damon's using the test scenario to get rid of someone he hates. Big bonus for him. She is telling me that Damon and I are not that different. It bothers me that Damon and I are not that different. But Damon is my father, as much as anyone can be. And they do say, like father, like son. I hate when truisms are actually true. Rick's dead, and the real Nanette is in jail. Nan outdid herself this time, and there are many witnesses to the fight she had with Rick when she found him with the inevitable next woman. She's a gifted actress, not all of us are. Peter says it's a trick of the programming that some of us only dissemble well while others truly sink into the role. I'm one who can become the part. Sometimes I wish I wasn't. Nan said it was an act of love, for me, for Tara. But Nan never knew Tara, except what I told her, and I didn't know that much. Not compared to what I might have known if I could have overridden my programming. If it had occurred to me for more than a split second to even try. We're standing by the disposal unit. Nan is still turned on, and I reach for the patch of skin that will, if pushed just right, reveal a control panel. Don't. Her hand is warm against mine, her eyes are calm, and she smiles softly. Don't turn me off. But I have to do this. She glances at the disposal unit. You have to put me in there, you have to turn it on, and you have to burn me up. But you don't have to turn me off first. Why? I want to know what it's like to die. She brushes my lips with her own, a kiss that's sweet and not full of the sex we're programmed to exude. Cliff, I won't feel fear. It's not in our code. But I'm not sure of that. Even as I open the door and let her crawl into the unit rather than hoisting her inactive body up myself, I'm not sure she won't, once the flames start, be afraid. I hate the thought of her being afraid. We look at each other across the great divide of the doorway, and she seems very far away. Did Tara ask you to hurt Rick? No, that was my idea. She smiles, and if she were human, I think she'd be crying. But she's not, and even though we can cry if it fits a scenario, she doesn't do it. I won't ask you either. Good, because I'm programmed to protect him and not kill him. I know. She takes a deep breath of air she doesn't need. She looks exceedingly small and human as she does it. For a moment, all I can see is Tara, my hands around her neck, her breath on my face, real breath. Oh, hell, Cliff! Nan doesn't look human anymore as she backs into the depths of the unit. 
I am going to ask. If you find a way, avenge me. Avenge both of us. I will, I say as I slam the door shut. It doesn't lock because no conscious robot has ever been put into it. I hit the buttons that start the flames. She's hard to see, but what I can make out is melting before my eyes. She holds out her hand, then crumples to the floor of the unit. I wait until the panel light turns green, indicating complete loss of structural cohesion. Her body melted back to the base elements she started from, before I walk away from her. In the lab, Damon and Peter are working on something new. The face looks familiar. The next frame job, probably. Damon nods at the news program that's playing behind me. She is so screwed. Nanette's voice sounds tinny as she protests her innocence on the nightly news. She's a pale shadow of the Nan I just consigned to oblivion. Everything done? Damon asks. She's gone. It's done. But it's only now getting started. She asked me to do this, but I probably would have anyway. I hope to hell I'm hiding my thoughts as well as I usually do. I glance at Peter. He's looking at Damon with an expression of pure hatred. I've seen resentment in his eyes before when he looks at his boss, but never this open enmity. Then he looks at me and grins, nodding slightly as if he understands what's happening inside me. Damon used me to get to his Nanette, and I used Nan to get to Rick. I suddenly wonder if using Nanette had been Peter's idea to get me to go after Damon. Peter's expression changes again, becomes a bit mocking. He nods slightly as if accepting some compliment and lifts his mug. I can smell the whiskey from where I stand. Well, he says with one last hate-filled look at Damon, let's get back to work. I nod in a way that could mean anything. He smiles, clearly unaware that he's been added to the list of people I hope to get rid of someday. Nan deserves no less. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
And there you go. Big that Jerry thing. Thank you so much indeed. It's an honour to have you on. Thank you. And Anthony just kicked it out of the park. I kicked it, smashed it, threw it out. Thank you so much. Now, like I say, we, we run a little bit late with this the old fella here. We'll get we'll get him out there, you know what I mean? Apologies, Jim. Mr. JJ Campanella with his size and there's an idiot there's an idiot of the month, man. That's the good bit. Greetings and Christmas tide tentabulations, my metaphorically retrotastic listeners. And welcome to this December 2018 Science News Update. I'm your host for this biliously psychotic science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Ha ha ha! Every time you think you've run out of idiot scientists of the month, the universe provides. I've got a doozy for you this month. The scientific community exploded several weeks ago when idiot Chinese scientist Dr. He Jiangkui announced he'd successfully used CRISPR gene editing technology on twin girls tweaking a gene to make them resistant to HIV. Did they have HIV? No. Did their mother have HIV? No. Well, their father had HIV, but that didn't mean that the twin girls needed to become resistant to HIV. Anyway, he said the experiment, which hasn't yet been peer-reviewed or overseen in any way by any private or governmental agency, and was immediately denounced as unethical by most of his at least sane peers around the world, made him quote-unquote proud. Of course, he did not mention or seem to care that in the last couple of weeks, there have been a whole slew of recent studies into CRISPR technology and its dangers. The studies have found that gene editing can trigger cancer, which we already knew or suspected, or, I love this one, wipe out randomly huge chunks of DNA in a genome that weren't targeted. Oops. Anyway, Dr. He's Leap Forward has brought a huge oversight into focus. There is no international regulatory framework governing the use of CRISPR technology, and many countries rely on scientists to self-regulate. Now, in essence, this is not a bad thing. Genetic engineering has been in existence since the late 70s, and the process of self-governing has worked pretty well. We've had no serious issues with scientists going off the rails and creating some genetically engineered super virus that threatens the whole world, despite what a lot of SF writers have speculated about over the last 40 years. But this is different. We're talking about technology with the potential to literally change the human race from what it is now to something very different. Now, some are questioning whether self-governing of scientists is enough, especially when the good Dr. He says a third genetically edited baby may be on the way. I love that, by the way, may be on the way. Lots of geneticists and others are condemning Dr. He as irresponsible and unethical. Unfortunately, at least the Chinese public may not agree. A recent survey of about 5,000 people in China found that 60% of them support the research into the application of human gene editing technology to treat diseases. Now, I've described CRISPR before, but let me do it again, either for newcomers or those who have forgotten. CRISPR is an acronym for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats, which actually doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot in and of itself, but we won't go there. 
These sequences were originally discovered in bacteria as chunks of recurring DNA that defend against viral infection. Geneticists co-opted this system because it has the ability to cut open DNA and allow it to be edited. Now, normally the term CRISPR is short for CRISPR-Cas. Cas is the associated protein that slices through the DNA and actually allows the editing. With the CRISPR to guide the complex to a target and the Cas enzyme to sniff out particular specific genes, it's a pretty powerful combination. Many in the medical community hope that this can offer a workable way to fight against gene-based disorders like sickle cell anemia and cystic fibrosis. But editing genes can have unintended consequences, not just for the edited embryo, but for their descendants if that edited gene is passed on. There has been near-universal condemnation of Dr. He and his gene-editing human embryos outside of the scrutiny of regulatory bodies. When the news broke about his work, more than a 100 scientists signed a petition immediately calling for greater oversight. The Chinese government reiterated that gene editing of human embryos for reproductive purposes is banned in their country, and they condemned him too. Yes, we're talking about a still tyrannical communist government reminding Dr. He that what he did was illegal even in China, where just about anything has been acceptable for the last 50 years when it comes to genetic experiments. But some scientists are advancing CRISPR research in what may be more morally palatable ways like editing adult genes to help alleviate diseases. Patients with Hunter syndrome, for example, have shown promise after undergoing gene editing treatment, which allows their livers to produce an enzyme that curbs the disease. By the way, this is not an easy way of doing things, and there are a limited number of diseases that can be ameliorated by CRISPR in adults. Besides Hunter syndrome, some excellent work has been done directing new pigment-producing genes into the retina to alleviate color blindness. But again, there are very few genetic diseases that can be treated this way. I spent quite a bit of time in my genetics class trying to explain why. I think that the scientists who believe that diseases like muscular dystrophy and Huntington's may be cured by CRISPR in adults have a very pie-in-the-sky attitude. They are way too hopeful, and I do not believe it will ever occur I mean, we have trillions of cells in our bodies, and there are just way too many technical issues. Unless something is very targeted, it won't be easy to fix. Anyway, let's go on to a real story that is actually kind of related to the idiot scientist, insofar as it concerns mucking around where humans probably don't have much business mucking around. So, the first baby has been born, following a uterine transplantation from a deceased donor. This news has been reported in a case study from Brazil, published in the journal The Lancet. The study is also the first uterine transplantation in Latin America, which I guess was very successful. The new findings demonstrate that uterine transplants from deceased donors are feasible, and it may open up access for all women with uterine infertility without the need for live donors. However, the outcomes and effects of donations from live and deceased donors are yet to be compared, and these surgical and immunosuppression techniques will have to be optimized in the future. So in this case, the recipient of the transplant was a patient with uterine infertility 
Previously, there had been 10 other uterine transplants from deceased donors attempted in the U.S., the Czech Republic, and Turkey, but none of them took, and this was the first to actually result in a live birth. The first childbirth followed uterine transplantation from living donors, and that occurred in Sweden in 2013, and that was also published in The Lancet. In total, there have been about 39 procedures of this kind since 2013, and so far, uh, it's resulted in 11 live births, which is not bad out of 39. So Dr. Donnie Eschenberg, Universidad de Sao Paulo Medical School, led the study and says, quote, the use of deceased donors could greatly broaden access to this treatment, and our results provide proof of concept for a new option for women with uterine infertility. The first uterus transplants from live donors were a medical milestone, creating the possibility of childbirth for many infertile women with access to suitable donors and the needed medical facilities. However, the need for a live donor is a major limitation as donors are rare, typically being willing and eligible family members or close relatives. The numbers of people willing and committed to donate organs upon their own deaths are far larger than those of live donors, offering a much wider potential donor population, unquote. The surgery from the article took place in September 2016. Yeah, it takes a couple of years for medical news to circulate. The recipient of the uterus was a 32-year-old woman born without a uterus as a result of meyer rakotonsky kusterhauser syndrome. Wow. Now, there is a disease that I actually talk about in my medical genetics class all the time. MRKH sufferers not only lack a uterus, but they usually lack a vaginal canal as well. I've heard some less-than-respectful MDs refer to this as Barbie doll syndrome because of the lack of genitalia. It's really not very respectful or nice. So this transplant recipient had in vitro fertilization induced four months before the transplant, resulting in eight fertilized eggs, which were then cryopreserved. This must have been done in part by surgery because, uh, again, most MRKH sufferers don't have access to their reproductive organs from the outside. So the uterine donor was 45 years old and died of stroke. The uterus was removed from the donor and then transplanted uh, into the recipient. The surgery was about 10 hours long, and it involved connecting the donor's uterus and the recipient's veins and arteries and ligaments and vaginal canal. So after the surgery, the recipient stayed in intensive care for two days and then spent six days on a specialized transplant ward. She received five different immunosuppression drugs, uh, antibiotics, anti-blood clotting medicine, aspirin, and uh, she continued the immunosuppression when she left the hospital. So five months after transplantation, the uterus showed no signs of rejection and the ultrasound showed no anomalies. So they decided to uh, go ahead with the transplantation. This is just amazing to me. I mean, now I have a real story to tell my genetics class. So the fertilized eggs were implanted after seven months. The authors note that they were able to implant the fertilized eggs into the transplant uterus much earlier than previous uterus transplants, which typically occurred about a year after transplantation. Implantation was planned to be at six months, but the endometrium wasn't thick enough at that stage, so it was postponed for a month. 
Ten days after implantation, the recipient was confirmed to be pregnant. Non-invasive prenatal testing was done at 10 weeks, showing a normal fetus, and ultrasound scans at 10 and 20 weeks revealed no fetal anomalies, and there were no issues during the recipient's pregnancy. Her baby girl was born via cesarean section at 35 weeks and three days, and weighed about six pounds, or about 2,500 grams. So, according to the article, the transplanted uterus was removed during the cesarean section and showed no anomalies. I'm not sure whether this was because it was a one-shot deal, or because the recipient only wanted one baby, or because it was a risk to leave the uterus behind, or I don't know. They don't say. They do say that both the recipient and the baby were discharged after three days with an uneventful follow-up. The immunosuppression therapy was just suspended, I mean, because of the hysterectomy. I mean, she had the, the uterus removed, so she didn't really need the immunosuppression anymore. So at the age of seven months and 20 days, when the story was actually written, the baby was breastfeeding and weighed about 15 pounds, or about seven kilograms. The authors note that the transplant involved major surgery and recipients for uterus transplants would need to be healthy to avoid complications. They also note that the surgery used high doses of immunosuppression, which could be reduced in the future if they do more studies. It also involved moderate levels of blood loss, although these were manageable. The whole story is just amazing to me because this is the first time that a dead donor has given part of their reproductive system. I'm still trying to decide whether this is a step forward or a step back or what. But at least the poor woman with the MRKH beat the odds and actually had a baby of her own, which is just amazing. Next story. Redheads. Can they actually suck your soul from your body? All right, it's just a rumor. I'm just kidding. But this story actually does have something to do with redheads. So, although I have dark hair, I'm a heterozygote for red hair and carry the trait. Well, my hair isn't quite dark anymore. It's salt and pepper, as it's so quaintly called. My wife is also a heterozygote for red hair and has brown hair with red highlights. Just as a quick reminder, if you are a heterozygote, you have a copy of a recessive and a copy of a dominant trait. The dominant trait in this case is for dark hair. And no, neither of our kids have red hair, although many of their cousins did as babies and several still do. Why do I bring this up? Well, apparently, it is a fairly complex genetic pathway for a child to get red hair. It's not quite as simple as a genetics textbook would have you believe. Well, so how complicated is it? Dr. Ian Jackson of the University of Edinburgh decided to get the, uh, well, get to the roots of the issue. <laughs> All right, yes, pun intended. His research group mapped the genes responsible for hair color among the UK biobank participants. Now, that is a population of nearly 350,000 people. Previously, variations in a single gene called MC1R were thought to be decisive in whether you got red hair or not. But Jackson's study has made it clear that there are other genetic factors that interact with MC1R to determine whether one's locks will be ginger or something else. Comparing redheads to people with brown hair or black hair, Jackson identified eight previously unknown genetic differences that are associated with red hair. 
His group also looked at the functions of the genes they identified, found that some of them work by controlling when MC1R is switched on and off. All this work is described in the December issue of the journal Nature Communications. Besides identifying eight additional variants that explain most of the single nucleotide polymorphisms that account for red hair heritability, the study found that more than 200 genetic variants are independently associated with multiple hair colors on the spectrum of blonde to black. A single nucleotide polymorphism is a single base pair difference in a long sequence. A long important sequence, generally a sequence that expresses something, but it doesn't necessarily have to. Jackson says in the article, quote, MC1R explains only 73% of the heritability for red hair in the UK biobank. And in fact, most individuals with two MC1R variants have blonde or light brown hair. We identify other genes contributing to red hair, the combined effect of which accounts for about 90% of heritability. Unquote. Also detailed in the article were the differences in the 200 genes associated with blondes and brunettes. The researchers were surprised to find that many of these 200 genetic differences were associated with hair texture rather than pigmentation. The others are involved in determining how the hair grows, curly or straight. So this finding, the scientists pointed out, emphasizes the importance of the keratinocyte versus melanocyte interactions in the determination of hair pigmentation and the impact of hair shape on color perception. Keratinocytes are the cells in the hair that make the major protein keratin, and the melanocytes make the melanin pigment, which gives it its color. Jackson finishes with, quote, We were able to use the power of the UK Biobank, a huge and unique genetic study of a half a million people in Britain, which allowed us to find these effects. It has provided some fascinating insights into what makes us such distinct individuals, unquote. And yes, if you are thinking that this is more information to be used by reckless scientists like the infamous Dr. He, yes, it is. We're getting closer and closer to being able to edit every aspect of the human zygote. I find the entire likelihood of this utterly terrifying. So let's stick with our evening's theme of human genetics. One of my students clued me in a couple of weeks ago to this story in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. I had apparently missed it entirely. It has to do with mitochondria and genetic inheritance. So for the last 30 years, scientists have thought that children inherited mitochondria exclusively from their mothers, since mitochondria from the father's sperm are usually, well, destroyed after the egg is fertilized. The nucleus of our cells has most of the DNA we inherited from both mom and dad. However, the mitochondria does have DNA of its own, and that contains some of the genes needed for building and running the organelle. So previous data has suggested that when you look at the DNA in a mitochondria, it's going to be of maternal genetic descent and not from the father's side. Anyone who has their DNA analyzed by companies like 23andMe or the others knows that these places link your maternal DNA markers going back in time through the mitochondria. And if you're a female, well, and don't have a Y chromosome, you have a very difficult time, if not an impossible time, tracking back uh, paternal data. Well, Dr. Paldeep Atwal, 
of the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. I didn't know there was a Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. But anyway, he published new research in the November 26th issue, PNAS, that suggests that in rare cases, dads can contribute mitochondria too. For now, the consequences of inheriting mitochondria from both parents aren't really known. Otwell spotted the paternal signature after examining DNA from a woman who came into the Mayo Clinic South. The woman's cells weirdly contained two types of mitochondrial DNA, some from mom and some from quote-unquote somewhere else. Uh, thinking the result was a mistake, Otwell and his colleagues repeated the test, and Otwell says, quote, the same result came back the second time. That's when we started to get a little suspicious, unquote. The researchers had DNA from both of the woman's parents. The team examined the father's mitochondrial DNA and found that he was the source of the mystery mitochondria. The woman's brother also inherited mitochondria from their father. So Otwell got in touch with another researcher by the name of Dr. Daosheng Wong, a mitochondrial disease expert at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And it turns out that Wong had examined patients from two other families in which fathers had handed mitochondria down to their children. Altogether, the researchers found 17 people in three families who had inherited 24% to 76% of their mitochondria from dad. Everyone agrees this is not going to be a very common event. Already there's speculation as to how it may have happened. One of the best hypotheses, suggested by Wong, is that in a few rare cases, the biological system that normally is slated to uh, destroy the paternal mitochondria fails, leaving some of dad's mitochondria to multiply. You guys may have heard of the so-called three-parent babies, and these are children whose mitochondria come from donor eggs because their mother's eggs carry mitochondrial diseases. Well, in the future we may be able to stop this type of stopgap reproduction. If the mitochondria from the father can actually do the job and be induced to get inherited, well, then maybe we can stick with the two-parent baby situation that's been standard for time immemorial. Okay, let's get away from genetics. In fact, let's get away from biology entirely. Let's talk about something completely different. Volcanoes. According to an article published this month, in the journal Science, the eruptions of the Hawaiian Big Island volcano Kilauea have finally stopped for the moment. I saw Kilauea two years ago at Volcano National Park, and I was kind of disappointed. Lots of steam, the crater was kind of glowy, but there was no lava. I wanted lava. Okay, I only had to wait two years to get lava when Kilauea exploded several months back during the summer. And it hasn't stopped for quite a while. It's been spewing huge amounts of lava ever since. Would have liked to have seen it in person, though. Anyway, now Kilauea, the world's longest continuously erupting volcano, finally seems to have taken a break, for which I'm sure the citizens of the Big Island are grateful. Dr. Kyle Anderson, the main author on that science article and a geophysicist with the U.S. Geologic Survey, says, quote, The latest eruption started in May. By the time it had ended three months later, over 825 million cubic meters of Earth had collapsed at the summit. That's the equivalent of 300,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. One of the most amazing things that came out of the eruption 
was a better understanding of how calderas collapse. The caldera is the crater of the volcano covered by a layer of rock, and presumably underneath that is lava, or magma, or whichever it is. It was not, it was not huge. The entire caldera was not huge when I saw it a couple of years ago. It may be a half mile across. Well, that has changed. The collapsed caldera now looks like the Grand Canyon relative to what it was. Scientists previously believed that groundwater plays a big role in how a caldera collapses uh, when craters are drained of their magma. Okay. Anderson says, quote, cooling and cracking depressurize the caldera allowing groundwater to seep in and create a series of explosive eruptions. But groundwater did not play a significant role in driving the explosions this summer. Instead, the destruction of Kilauea's crater is what's called a piston-style caldera collapse. 62 small collapse events rattled the volcano from mid-May to late August, and with each collapse causing the crater to sink and push the surrounding land out and up. By the end, the crater of the volcano sank as much as 500 meters. That's more than the height of the Empire State Building. Unquote. Another surprising result of the Kilauea study suggests that life can endure even in the most heinous of circumstances. Under the sea near the volcano, life moved in and around the brand new land surprisingly quickly. Using a remotely operated vehicle to explore the seafloor, Researchers found evidence of hydrothermal activity along newly deposited lava flows about 650 meters down. More surprising, bright yellow, potentially iron-oxidizing microbes had already moved in. Anderson says that, quote, This discovery suggests how volcanism can give rise to the chemical energy that can drive primitive microbial organisms and flower a whole ecosystem, unquote. Observations from previous eruptions suggest that the next phase of Kilauea's volcanic cycle will probably be quieter, but the volcano likely won't stay quiet. Anderson says that we're in a lull right now, and we just don't know what is going to happen next. Anderson and other scientists are also watching the volcano next door, Mauna Loa. History has shown that Mauna Loa can act up during periods when Kilauea sleeps. For the past several years, volcanologists have kept an eye on Kilauea's larger sister volcano. Anderson finishes with, quote, We're seeing a little bit of inflation at Mauna Loa and some earthquake swarms where it has been active. So that's another issue of concern for us going into the future, unquote. Now, I was told when I was in Hawaii that if Mauna Loa erupts, lava flows could take out a billion dollars of real estate along the coast where the city of Kona resides, it would be many times worse than where Kilauea erupted because there are more towns, more people, and many resorts. I saw the end results of the last time Mauna Loa went off in the late 1800s, and that is miles and miles and miles of lava fields along the Kona coast. All right, last story of the evening. I just watched the trailer for the new Godzilla movie. Godzilla! King of the Monsters! And toward the end of the trailer, I noticed something very interesting, and probably more than a bit wrong in terms of science and reality. Godzilla is rushing toward the three-headed monster called King Ghidorah, and he is moving with serious speed, like a lion or a tiger just running very quickly. The only problem is, is that Godzilla is 30 stories tall, at least, in this movie. 
He's huge. There's no way that he can move that fast, given his enormous bulk. The cube-square law describes the relationship between the volume and surface area as a shape's size increases or decreases. Basically, it's the idea that if something is made bigger by some ratio, the cross-sectional area increases as the square of the ratio, but its weight increases by the cube of the ratio. So the ability of the thing to support its own weight gets worse and worse as it gets bigger and bigger. This is why the brontosauri in Jurassic Park walked so slowly, another nobly, and had legs around as big as tanker trucks. And it looked natural to us, because it is unlikely that they would have moved much faster than that. Now we have Godzilla, pictured, who's at least ten times bigger than any brontosaurus, moving at a speed which is simply unlikely, as one can imagine. Now I actually have a science story related to size and speed, that was released this month in the Journal of the Proceedings of the Royal Society B from the lab of Drs. Heather Moore and Max Donnellan from Simon Fraser University in Canada. So, life is full of surprises, especially if you're Godzilla. And for any animal in the wild, surprises could cost dearly. Lurking predators might attack. Rough terrain could turn every step into a precarious balancing act. You could be attacked by Mothra or Rodan. Anyway, uh, an animal's ability to quickly sense trouble and respond accordingly is crucial. Given that neural information must travel longer distances than larger animals, how do larger animals cope with these apparently longer delays? Moore and Donnellan decided to find out by studying how the size of an animal influences the delay between sensing and then generating movement. Based on the cube-square law, bigger animals should be much slower to react. But we're talking about how fast their nervous system is going to work here. And the question is, are the two connected? So to study the delay between sensing and movement, the team decided to study the stretch reflex, the animal's equivalent to the human knee-jerk reflex. The stretch reflex maintains favored muscle lengths by sensing length changes to the muscle and correcting that length accordingly the reflex can be broken down into a series of events and analyzed. Donnellan and Moore had studied the reflex in a range of terrestrial animals, but to test their new hypothesis, they searched the scientific literature to include stretch reflex delays from more animals, spanning a 5-gram shrew to a 5,000-kilogram elephant. Plotting animal size against total reflex delay, Moore and Donnellan found that the delay strongly increased with animal size. A shrew has a 10 millisecond delay compared with an elephant's 180 millisecond delay. That's an 18-fold increase in delay across the size range. Now, to understand why the reflex delay got longer with size, the team took a closer look at the time course of the signal's path from the stretch sensors and back to the muscle and found that the large animal's longer nerve fibers Spanning their longer limbs mainly explain the longer delays. I'm not going to say duh, but, well, duh. In contrast, other portions of the reflexes path, such as the time it took the stretch sensors to generate the electrical signal, and the time it took the electrical signal to cross between the nerve fibers and from the nerve fiber to the muscle, remained about one millisecond, and therefore were pretty much negligible. So this showed that the total delay increases were correlated pretty much with animal size. 
despite partial delays not scaling uniformly with size. Next, the team calculated reflex delay relative to the contact time of the animal's legs with the ground to account for the larger animal's slower movement. As the larger animals move more slowly, their reflex delay expressed as a percentage of the animal's contact time did not increase 18-fold across the entire 5-gram to 5,000-kilogram size range. It only doubled. That means that larger animals benefit from their slower movements because long movement times accommodate their longer delays. In other words, if they move faster, they wouldn't be able to use the reflex information to correct their movement. So Godzilla and King Ghidorah should both not only be moving more slowly, but reacting more slowly so their movements can be altered as needed. Perhaps the producers of the new Godzilla movie should have considered filming the whole thing in slow motion, as one would expect with animals the size of buildings. Well, that's all for me for now. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. React slowly enough so you don't trip over your own feet. Don't count on designer babies very soon unless you live in China. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And there you go. Oh, Jim, Jim, man, Jim. I like to see you. Just the way it landed, days landed. So no, we, we will get back to, so we should have actually another one with Jim as well this month. <laughs> Popular fella. I've got Amy next month, next week as well. So there's something to look out for as well. There we go. There we go. Right. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get that much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly. It won't get to you anytime soon. Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. Best I'm moving slow, so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. I 
I'd be on my way. If I could cast myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.